Greetings, my friends, and welcome back to Studs. I'm Daniel Lazar. Studs explores and honors working. It also honors the life's work of the oral historian and the legendary Chicago radio host, Louis Studs Turco. And in the effort to close the social distance, Studs gives me the chance to check in with good, hardworking people and take a deep dive into what they do for a buck. I want to take a moment to thank you for tuning in and to tell you that if you support the mission of Studs and you dig what we're trying to do here, I got a real easy way for you to show your support. Head on over to patreon.com studs. You'll find the link in the show notes. I offer a range of rewards for your support. You can get some cool stuff for like 50 cents an episode. Don't feel obliged to. I do this because I love it. And if you need to take a free ride, take a free ride. I get it. I've been on that train. But you can still do your part to help. Subscribe, follow, leave a review, leave a rating. Tell a pal or two about your favorite episode of Studs. But I totally want to take a sec to give some love to a super special Studs patron. He's a Studs alum from season three. He was on the Studs working roundtable at the end of that season. And to be honest with you, this dude has been patronizing my tomfoolery and shenanigans, my projects and my passions since I was a young man. I'm proud to say that Todd Greenstein is a patron of this podcast, not just because he throws a couple bucks at it every month, but because he sends me messages and he shares ideas and he tells me what he likes and what he wants to hear more of and maybe what he wants to hear less of. In my mind's eye, he's on the Mount Rushmore of patrons. But in my mind's eye, he's kind of on my personal Mount Rushmore. He's a good man, and I'm proud to have him as a patron. And I know he's going to love this episode. Now, this episode actually came to me from a previous episode where the firefighter, Jason Danvir, humbly requested that I reach out to Richie to discuss his work. And in that episode, I shared with Jason that Richie and I grew up in the same neighborhood. We went to all the same schools, including the same Hebrew school. And at one point, we played on the same Park District basketball team. We were the Lakers, and I donned myself Kareem Abdul-Lazar, and I worked that hook shot in my parents' backyard. And now, man, now Richie just seems 10 feet tall to me. He's killing it in Tinseltown, rooted in the liberal arts and a sense of justice. Richie's a storyteller. He meets people where they're at. He listens to their journeys. And he does the thing to make the stars align so you and I can connect to characters, learn life lessons, and empathically dial into a world of his production. He's always been a special guy, kind of a cut above the rest, in my humble opinion. And so it is indeed an honor to dive into the working life of executive producer Richard Schwartz. Richie Schwartz, welcome to Studs. It is a bona fide pleasure to have you. Thank you for joining me. You are an executive producer. You are currently the head of television at Olive Bridge Entertainment. How do you describe what you do? You know, it's hard to give a terse description of exactly what I do. And the irony of that is often I'm the guy telling writers or directors or editors, you know, all about keeping it brief, keeping it direct. Yet here I am about to tell you what this job entails. And most likely you're going to have to edit it because... um, (laughs) It's a little bit of everything, which is what I love about it. Simply put, often, but not always, it's 
sort of about making sure that something goes from a notion as far as it can until it gets hopefully to the screen until it's an actual television series that someone can watch at home in between there are a million other steps and even after that and oftentimes most of the time we don't get to that final step but the job itself is part creative manager part salesman part project coordinator part human resources recruiter part therapist part actuary and it touches every step of the process you know from from the very beginning generating the source material or hearing a, a pitch from a writer or reading an article or listening to a podcast or looking at a book figuring out can that be adapted and if so what should it be adapted into and for whom finding a partner a writer a director to help adapt that material working on the actual treatment of the idea taking that out to market market being the the studios the networks hopefully finding a buyer who wants to partner with it and see it through to the next step which can be in some cases a a, a script in some cases a pilot in some cases a series managing and helping the creative development of that process liaising between the buyer the network the studio and the writer helping them you know develop the material interpret notes feedback strategizing and jockeying you know to hopefully get a pickup you know on the option to make to physically make the series and that's when it goes from um, development executive to producer when something's actually going to be physically you know shot uh, on film that point it becomes a lot about attaching elements, hiring, finding the right director, the right line producer, the right casting director, casting, and then helping prep the project, overseeing the budgeting, the preparation, the production itself, you know, sort of standing by and and managing that process, seeing the project through post-production, and then hopefully you get picked up to series and then you're starting the process again with budgeting the, the, the actual series and then, you know, subsequent seasons. When I started this, it was a lot about finding a, a writer with a great take on something or an idea. And you'd walk in and, and pitch that and people would say, yeah, we'll, we'll trust that. And now as television has blown up and yes, there are so many more opportunities, there's, there's so much more competition. You're competing with the entire world and you're competing with everyone who used to be in the film business, which is sort of yeah. dwindled a little bit and, and, and transformed into, into streaming television as everything has converged. And you're competing with everything that existed before because now people can go and watch great old television with the same click of the button that they can watch a new show. It's, as you can see in my not so brief answer, <laughs> it's everything and anything, and it's constantly changing and evolving, which is, I think, the best and the worst part of this job. Yeah, it seems like a wholly interdisciplinary endeavor. And to succeed at that, one has to be nearly omnicompetent. I got to tell you, Richie, just hearing it, I am almost like equal parts exhausted (laughs) and super energized by how it must feel to toggle between these different tasks. And I want to get into how you toggle and I want to sort of get into how you're both inspired and exhausted by it. But before we do, if you don't mind, I'm really curious about your path. I know that we both studied politics and history. Uh, I teach politics and history, and you, um, you, you produce television. And so I'm kind of curious as to how you went from studying the social sciences to making a go out of it in Tinseltown. Yeah, I mean, I definitely have a a little bit of a liberal arts bias. You know, some of my contemporaries have gone to film school or studied communications. Initially, that is something that I was pursuing more from the journalistic side of it. And as I got into college and started doing more work experience, um, found a lot of value in those experiences, in being an editor and being an advertising copywriter and the sort of light bulb that went on for me, and it's not a you know, radical revelation by any means, was you can learn a lot of the jargon and the process on the job, 
but what am I making <laughs> if I don't know what I'm making it about? And so I've always had a deep curiosity, you know, about the world and events of the world and how systems work. And it could have been anthropology or English or virtually almost any liberal arts subject. But I always felt like I, I had a desire and hunger to learn through those liberal arts, you know, disciplines, which I still tap on a regular basis, you know, because I think a lot of my job at searching is, is going to be reading and is going to be sort of looking at the past for storylines and knowing history gives you a um, sort of trains you to look at the world from different perspectives. And that's what I strive to do with the shows and projects that I produce is to sort of get inside other perspectives and really look for opportunities to talk about and probe the human condition, which is, I mean, it's great being on a a podcast named after Studs Terkel, because I believe that's what he was trying to do. And that's what that's what you're doing with this show. And we're all trying to do similar things. And in a way, I think coming at it from that sort of liberal arts perspective, just emphasized that to me at that point. And everything else I learned, I learned on the job. Um, and Hollywood is an interesting system because there's there's no one way to do it, but the sort of most customary way is to climb the ladder, um, which is, I, I took some circuitous paths to it, but eventually I, you know, got a job as an assistant where you're doing what is amounts to clerical work very often. And, you know, a lot of people with fancier degrees than me are, are sometimes going, well, why am I doing this? But it was almost an apprenticeship where you get to see and hear everything. And it's, it was so strange initially because you're sitting on phone calls and listening to people's conversations and reading all their emails, but it's, sort of the best education you can get in how the business works. And so that, again, you have to find those opportunities. And I believe I was even privileged to be presented with some of those opportunities, some of which I, you know, had to seek out on my own. But I think without that, that backbone of the, you know, letters and sciences, it would feel a little bit lacking. So to answer the initial question, I did study that in college, but at the same time, I was always seeking out other opportunities to be around creative people and and be a part of that. And I quickly learned I was not as interested in being out front as I was sort of being behind the scenes. Um, I actually sought out opportunities in the early days of the internet. I wanted to go to the Cannes Film Festival, which I'd heard about for years. And I found a early website that was devoted to covering it. And I finagled a press pass. <laughs> and I went to the, the French Riviera as a <laughs> 21 year old, you know, sleeping in a youth hostel, but with a tuxedo from my cousin's wedding, you know, <laughs> hanging on the, on the, on the bunk bed. Um, and then going to premieres of, you know, movies on the red carpet there, you know, I was always a little unusual trying to sort of seek out those opportunities. And when I was in college at the university of Wisconsin, I sort of tracked down, um, someone who become a mentor to me, who was a, a writer producer who was based up there and, and through him, you know, met someone who turned out to be the significant other and producer of the director, David Lynch, who I grew up as a huge fan of, you know, watching his movies and Twin Peaks and all that. And, you know, had the ability to do some research on a project, you know, that David would be producing and ultimately directing. Um, and that was a thrill. And then that yeah. sort of went away and I'd planned to move back to Chicago because I have such deep love for the city of Chicago and actually physically signed a lease for a, a great uh, apartment in the city. And a day later, got a call from David Lynch's producer saying, we just got a green light on this movie and we're going to go shoot it, you know, in the Midwest. And then Post is going to be in LA and David's going to be directing a pilot out there. Uh, do you want to be an assistant? And as soon as I heard that, I knew absolutely. And my whole life leading up to that, I had wanted to come to Los Angeles and work in the entertainment industry, but I think didn't quite know how to do it. And at the time, it always felt a little daunting to me. And until that opportunity dropped into my lap, that's when I finally said, okay, this is it. This is this is meant to be. Found another friend <laughs> from college who wasn't planning to move to Chicago, convinced him it was the right move for him. 
because uh, I didn't want to leave leave my other friends in the lurch, <laughs> you know, on that apartment, you know, packed up a bag and moved to L.A. with a job, <laughs> which is incredible. Yeah. And that was uh, 23 years ago. What was the movie and how did it feel when you got the call? That movie was probably the most uncharacteristic movie in the David Lynch canon. It was called The Straight Story. Oh, it's great. It was rated G and it was for Disney. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I had helped John Roach and Mary Sweeney, who wrote the movie, um, with initial research because it's based on a true story. And then when we shot it, we actually traced Alvin Strait's route from, you know, the middle of Iowa to his brother's place. You know, he rode a John Deere riding lawnmower you know, over many days to visit his ailing brother. That experience, I think, was formative for me of seeing how how a film is made. And I'd been on sets before, but seeing how a craftsman like David Lynch works. But also for me, it also taught me that physical production maybe wasn't my jam. <laughs> um, you know, being on your feet all day and, um, you know, rigging gear and cable and, you know, that sort of thing was less appealing to me than sort of putting together the projects and the sort of initial brainstorm around it. But I will say, yes, when I did get that call, it was, yeah, it, it felt like, of course, you know, it was like sort of like I'd been waiting for it, but also caused tremendous anxiety because I knew immediately it was a, it was a big move. And I knew in that moment I, I had to do it. Yeah. And then the other project, by the way, the pilot was a TV pilot called Mulholland Drive. You may recognize that name because it actually came out as a movie yes. years later, but the project originated as a television pilot that David Lynch was going to come back to television after many years after Twin Peaks. It was right before The Sopranos came out. So it was right before cable became this place, you know, for auteurs and for things that were a little outside the lines. And so when David Lynch delivered his initial cut of the pilot, which was fantastic and, you know, shares so much DNA with what made the, 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 the movie great. There was this immediate disconnect, you know, with him and the, the network and the network executives. And I remember the pages and pages of notes coming out of the fax machine. And there was sort of this sort of creative difference that couldn't be reconciled, you know, between David's vision and what the network wanted. And I do think only in looking back, that also to me was formative and seeing, okay, this is how the process works. Should there be sort of someone in between here who can speak the language to the network and to the, you know, director and figure out how to how to bridge this gap? Sometimes there just might not have been. In that case, you know, there was probably no reconciling the the, the competing visions for it. But early on, I understood this is how things sometimes go, and they don't always have to go this way. Hmm. And I was just an assistant. I mean, honestly, I was just making coffee and you know collecting the faxes. But I think in those sort of assistance jobs, you get exposure to so much of the process that sort of implants in your mind further down the road. Well, I want to suggest that the reason you were able to see it for what it was, was because you were able to make yourself available and vulnerable enough and to put your ego aside enough to learn as much as you could from that experience. Like, whereas other people they might have been like, why the fuck am I getting coffee? You know, knowing you, you probably just like, you took a deep dive into it. You're like, I'm going to do the work I have to do. I'm going to do it dutifully, but I'm going to keep my eyes and ears open. You know, that's kind of your jam, man. You're good like that. I'm going to have to ask you to suffer an indignity right now. And I'm going to ask you if you would be so kind to kind of quick walk me from working with Lynch to some of the projects you're on now and just... And and then I want to dive into some of those projects to use as illustrations of how you get from a notion to the screen and some of the um, the facets of your job that we have to explore. So can you quick walk me just to get a sense of the types of projects you've been working on? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I work exclusively on television shows at my company. There's an executive who does the same thing I do, but for feature films. And I think both because of my sensibility and the producer director who's started the company, who I'm partnered with, we tend to lean toward more sort of shows that have a bit of a comedic bent to them. But um, beyond that, 
working and have worked on all types of programs from half hour sitcom to animated comedy to, you know, one hour docu-series reality style programming to one hour drama limited series. I like to say they all share just an, a, an appreciation, you know, of the human condition that they're about something, that they have something to add to the the conversation that they may delve into a subculture that we haven't seen before or take a different point of view. And so that's initially what I'm looking for usually, but also I have the luxury because I work as a producer and not as a, maybe as a network or studio executive that I can pursue projects that are just interesting to me, like things that I would want to go down the research rabbit hole on. There's nothing better than to be working on, on shows and talking about worlds that are, you know, something I would be looking at anyway on a Saturday afternoon or a book that I would be reading anyway. So that's the best part of being an independent producer. You know, I guess a couple examples, one uh, that we just got a second season pickup on uh, is a show called Woke that uh, in the States airs on Hulu. That was a long process as are most of the shows that make it to air probably uh, over five years from, you know, the beginning of it till actual premiere. Um, and that's not atypical. Wow. You know, I always say this is a people business, you know, and, and you collect people and you curate people. And in that case, um, a producer I know um, brought me the, the cartoons and, and comics of an acclaimed black cartoonist who was in the pages of some alt weeklies, but also some papers like the Washington post. And immediately the, the director uh, producer that I work with and I both sort of identified, this was a really interesting point of view in a really sort of sharp, you know, original and subversive take on issues of race and culture. And that felt like something that wasn't quite represented on screen at the time. And, you know, and so from there, it was all about taking these comic strips and saying, how, do, what, how does this become a television show? You know, which is a pretty long jog, but sort of identifying what we liked about it and then getting our studio partner on board with just optioning, you know, paying a small fee to sort of say, we're going to use this as source material exclusively and let's, you know, let's make a deal. And then now let's find a writer who has a take on it, who identifies with with this and can sort of harness the voice you know within these but also has an idea of how to actually make it into an ongoing series and so there was a long extensive after the deal making which takes a while the, the extensive sort of writer search of talking to you know agents and managers and just reading material which I do on a regular basis anyhow and sort of collecting people in a way, you know, and thinking about who might spark to this. And that's a long process and you meet a lot of people and it's almost like dating in a way until you find the the writer who you think has the right take on it and they're enthusiastic. And, you know, from there we work on a pitch. Can I pause you there for a second? Yeah. Yeah. I would love to hear you talk a little bit more about that. How do you marry the right writer to a particular project how do you find these people and then how do you connect them to the content and empower them to use their, their, their voice, to use their instrument to empower and embolden and create this particular project? You know, I'm constantly reading and meeting people. And there's this thing in Hollywood called general meetings where you either read something or an agent or a manager calls you and says, I want you to meet this person. And it's a meeting that almost just seems like a cocktail party. You just sit down with somebody, you're both drinking coffee or a bottle of water and uh, just talking. I mean, it's, it's incredible. Again, sometimes I pinch myself, like I'm going to work today and I get to really talk to interesting people and, and meet them and ask them questions and hear about them. And that's a lot of my job. And so then when you actually have something that's, you know, an actionable item that's a piece of material, I'm able to sort of look back and say, hey, remember that person or this person? At the same time, I'm also sending it out wide to 
people that I know that I've worked with in the past, but again, also representatives, agents, and managers and saying, who do you have who you think might spark to this? And that's their job too, you know, on behalf of their clients to say, have you looked at this person or this person? And so you're, you're meeting a lot of people. And oftentimes it's not just marrying someone to material, but also marrying someone to, um, to maybe the original writer. So in this case, the cartoonist, you know, stayed involved as a writer. And oftentimes there is a creator and you need to bring a showrunner on and you're also marrying to the team. So in this case, I also have other producing partners who are terrific and who were, you know, a huge part of this process. It is never just me alone on any of this stuff. And I would not want to make it seem that way. And so it's it can be complicated and some marriages work better than others. Yeah. For me, it's a lot of seeing it in the material itself and someone's original material, but also sort of sitting down with them and talking to them and sort of hearing how they think. And it's ongoing. It's probably the biggest part of my job is I often have right now, I have a number of projects where it's, you know, looking for a director or looking for an actor. And so you're constantly going out there. And frankly, it's, it's sales. And I was never interested. I never even sold Cutco knives. I was never the type who's like a salesman in a way. And that has probably been the most awkward fit of being a producer is having to call around and say, I got the best piece of material. You got to bring someone out for it. But I've always put faith in the fact that I think the material that I choose to, to work on speaks for itself and is very strong. So if I can get that out to the right group of people, and people want to work too, you know, so, you know, I'm hopeful that I'll find someone who's, who's the right match, but um, yeah, it's very complicated um, and sometimes goes awry, but when it works, it can be magic. I'm desperately curious about the role that you play at these general meetings. Do you feel like you sort of take on or persona, or do you perhaps accentuate facets of your personality and maybe stymie other facets of your personality? Like, how do you, while still being yourself, of course, go into these meetings? To what degree are you strategic versus how much of it is improvised and uh, sort of friendly? What kind of vibe do do, do you try to create? I'm curious about all of those things. Answer any of those. I really don't apply much strategy to a general meeting. I think you are just, as I said, it's sort of like dating. And I guess you want to be yourself, right? And you want that other person to be themselves. Because if someone is putting on a a, a guise or trying to throw out a specific vibe, once you're working with them, you know, the the truth will come out (laughs) who that person is. So to me, it's just I've always tried to create, not just in a general meeting, but just in the process, it's just sort of a very easy, safe, casual, uh, and creatively supportive environment where... How do you do that? I, I, I mean, honestly, I think I just try to be myself and I try to value what the creative partner is bringing to the table, you know, and I don't try to turn it into something different. I try to you know, everyone comes in with their own point of view. And the good news is the way the, you know, the tastes have changed in the world. It's, I think maybe when I came in or way before I started, it was always about trying to fit things into boxes. And now it's all about finding what someone has to offer and probing and exploring. It's, you'd make a great development executive, Dan, because it's what you do with this podcast. It's someone gives an answer and you're listening. And I think that's tremendously important is to always be listening and don't follow a script and just sort of follow the course of conversation. And oftentimes long-term uh, creative partnerships I've had with people have, have come from these sort of meetings because you get on a th- sort of stream of consciousness and start talking about something and it sparks and it becomes something tangible where you walk away and say, that's a, that's a real thing. Let's keep talking about that. And that's how it works in the writer's room too you know, very often is it's, it's gotta be the sort of free flowing exchange of ideas. Then again, I'm as the producer, it's also my job to still have that part of the brain on, which I can't really ever turn off, which is okay. Like how do we take this from just an idea in a, in a general meeting, you know, to something greater than that, you know, to, to not let that invade the process too much, but to always be mindful of how do we reconcile a purely creative idea with, the marketplace, how can we sell something? What does it need? 
does this work? Has this existed already? Is this a fresh take on something? Could this be someone who could pair well with an existing piece of material that we have? Or is this something that should be an original pitch, you know, from their head or from their own experience? I think the other key, again, much like a podcast, is to understand where people come from and what their own experiences are. Because more and more, and I think to the credit of this idea, that the, the types of ideas that people want are ideas that feel like only that writer could write it. As opposed to walking in and having a conceit of a type of show, it's got to really come from personal experience. And I don't think they should only be buying ideas that are personal experience because otherwise you'd never have our greatest movies, Star Wars and, you know, uh, Wizard of Oz and on and on. But they they need to have an essential truth to them. You need to find the way to sort of tap into it from a personal place. And so often it's metaphor. It's not a direct literal correlation with someone's life experience. But, you know, I'm interested in hearing people's stories and what's different and what I don't see from my point of view. And, you know, an exciting trend over the past few years, which I hope is more than a trend. I hope it's just the the right sizing of, of the marketplace of ideas is we're getting a lot more diverse points of view in, in, in TV and film. And we're hearing perspectives that we've never heard before. And it's, it's quite eye-opening. And I think it does not to be too grandiose, but it does have the ability to really impact and change people's minds and, and points of view. And obviously not, the job is not done. <laughs> um, but, you know, I think um, using entertainment as a way to sort of, Trojan horse, <laughs> some, you know, real provocative ideas, you know, into television and film, you know, has in the past been a way that you can achieve change and also tends to be some of the most compelling entertainment around. So that's a long way from your original question, but I do think it all comes back to people, you know, it's, it's meeting meeting people all the time, staying in touch with people, hearing their stories, hearing their about their journeys and hearing what they feel needs to be said that hasn't been said yet. You had brought up Woke and I know that you're working on this show, Sneakerheads, and it seems like both are succeeding in creating a challenging space for diverse voices there seems to be a sense of justice at the root of both shows. Both shows are pursuing a certain kind of truth. And I know you well enough to know that among the things we share is a profound sense of justice and a desire to pursue truth. Can you talk a little bit about how your work empowers you to do that? I think it goes back to the fact that when I'm looking to help tell stories or to be supportive in storytelling, authenticity is often at the heart of what I'm looking to do. Um, and I recognize my own shortcomings uh, in terms of my own experiences. And I lived a very specific type of experience, as did you growing up. And to me, truth and justice is achieved through, through authenticity. Too often in Hollywood, the history of Hollywood, you've had people who don't have a full uh, understanding writing or directing or executing the stories that are not theirs. You know, I don't want to say it's appropriation, but um, I recognize my own shortcomings. I don't pretend to to know everyone, but I, I am I, I do want to listen and I do want to use whatever position I have to help tell those stories. There's a tendency in some of your work to try to focus on narratives that are often given short shrift in mainstream culture, you know, in thinking about Sneakerheads Woke, but also the, the Michael J. Fox show, like that had a very specific and frankly heartening narrative and there there wasn't anything quite like it on TV. And it was great. Wow. The Michael J. Fox project, since you mentioned, was an incredible, you know, experience for me because I, you know, grew up and I've been lucky because I've, over the course of my career, 
between David Lynch and Conan O'Brien, who I worked for for a number of years, and Michael J. Fox, I've had the chance to work for and with some of my heroes growing up, some of the people whose work was defining or seminal to me. And then on top of that, to meet Michael and to realize that the real life version is even better than the version that was probably unreachable and in my head as a person. And then understanding his situation, you know, and trying to convey that on screen. I mean, that was that experience was was full of a lot of highs and then one low, which was ultimately the fact that, you know, we were only able to make one season of that. And I think for a variety of reasons, didn't quite get it right. It was tough, but sort of going through that, both from a professional place of like reading his book and meeting him and sort of working with him and, you know, the writers on a, on an idea for a show that we then took out and got an unprecedented commitment for from multiple networks and then being with him and just seeing how he would affect people, <laughs> you know, and telling his story and seeing how just the, the fact that he was making television again and putting out, putting everything out there about who he was and how sort of normalizing in a way his condition and telling the story that would be normally the terrain of a, of a drama or an after-school special or a made-for-TV movie, but doing it in, in a half-hour comedy, you know, um, and showing people that Parkinson's is devastating, but at the same time, like many conditions, and I believe almost every family has something that they're dealing with at one time or another, if not all the time, it becomes part of your life. And life goes on and that may be a, a tough way, but you know, as there's sadness and tragedy to it, there's also hilarity, you know, and there's love and there's all these other ranges of emotion. And it was a tricky thing to do to achieve the right tone, you know, with that show. And again, like I said, I don't know if we hit a bullseye on it, but it was an ambitious attempt to do that. And, you know, I sort of welcome those opportunities to make those kind of shows. And I really respect that. And I also, I have to confess to you, I'm a bit overwhelmed by the prospect of the question that I'm going to try to ask. But here I go. You seek to produce shows that tend to have a sense of humor to them, though the shows have very different, you know, senses of humor and sensibilities. They're funny, but they're evocative they're 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 compelling, but there's something in some of the shows that are like just like ordinary people, like you know, family stories. There's so much going on. There's so much that they're trying to accomplish. To say nothing of, you know, the business and the art of trying to make it look good and sound good. You have this complicated product, if I can call it a product, that you're trying to share with the world. And then you have all of these different roles that you have to play to make that happen, from creative management to sales, project coordination. You mentioned being, you know, a therapist and having to do HR and what seems like an endless stream of research. I guess I kind of wonder how you decide the order of operations, like what to do on a given day, knowing that there are just so many plates being spun at one time. It's dizzying to even think about, yet you seem so grounded in talking about it. You you see me not coming to a question here. Can you talk about how you um, negotiate all of the plates that you have to have in the air all the time to make the whole thing work? Yeah, I guess I don't think about it always that way. And that maybe helps make it easier. I mean, ideally I have enough different projects and different stages that the tasks aren't repetitive so that an ideal day for me might involve some of all of the elements that you were talking about, maybe less of the therapy HR stuff. It's not my favorite. Um, <laughs> uh, my business, television business especially, is a business of failure, uh, I often say. And it's just a matter of when that failure is achieved. <laughs> I, I, a failure could be considered from the very beginning when you have a meeting with someone, a writer that you're eager to work with, and it just doesn't 
connect or there's just they choose to work with a different producer or a, a different project. It can be when you don't sell the pitch to the studio or you're not able to make the deal for the material or you don't sell the pitch to the network or the network passes on the script, you know, or they, they, they pick it up to be shot, but they don't pick up the pilot or it falls apart as you're trying to work out the budget or it, it, it gets shot as a pilot, but it doesn't get picked up to series. So no one's ever going to actually see it. And the, you know, the, the party's over or you make the, the series, but it, something doesn't go right with it. It doesn't get executed quite properly. And so it doesn't work or it does work, but it, the new boss of the network comes in and decides they don't want to put it on the air. They're going to bury it or they're not going to schedule it or it does work and it does get scheduled and it's on the air, but it doesn't get the good enough reviews or it doesn't get the audience and it doesn't get a, a, a back nine order. They used to have in television. You get 13 episodes and then you get the second part of your season ordered, or it doesn't get the second season order, or it doesn't get the third season order. And it, all those steps are sort of considered failure until you get to a, a series that sort of runs its course in five seasons and which is a small, you know, single digit percentage of all the, the projects that are, you know, developed every year. That can be bruising, but it's sort of taught me to redefine success and failure a little bit and also enjoy every step. I think Warren Zevon said, enjoy every sandwich, <laughs> but it, you know, it's kind of like it's, so for me, it's actually finding each one of those victories and sort of enjoying it. And so a lot of what I do, which might seem banal or seem like just on the long road to getting to where you want to get to, for me are thrilling. When I read a piece of material that I'm excited about or have a great, you know, creative session with someone that I enjoy working with, or we have a, a director or writer attached to a project we're excited about or an actor or gets bought, you know, every sale, you know, is meaningful to me. And so looking at it that way um, makes it, it makes every job I have to do more, more meaningful and that I'm a part of, and I love what I do. So I don't know, while it can be stressful at times and it can be very frustrating at times, like when you get down the road with Michael J. Fox and you've gotten a 22 episode commitment and you're working with a hero and you have this ambitious mission of what you're doing with the show. And then it just doesn't get the ratings or the network, you know, doesn't, treated properly or they don't want to make more episodes like it can be crushing it can be devastating and that doesn't change but I think enjoying the day-to-day -day of of my work and also having enough things that are actually moving forward in production because I've had long stretches where nothing is getting made and you're just sort of going out there pounding the pavement like Willie Loman trying to sell <laughs> your wares and trying to like get things set up and it feels like the whole business is conspiring against you and it can be a little bit crushing but I think being mindful of what makes this special and what makes this fun and what makes this a childhood dream come true for me each and every day helps keep me grounded for a little bit of time you know I've had offices on many studio lots over the past 10 months I've been working out of, uh, you know, a guest bedroom in my house. But, you know, I was reminded sometimes when I was on the Universal Studios lot, like as a kid, we'd take a, you know, family vacation out to California and I'd be on that tram driving by these offices saying like, what goes on there and how cool would it be to be there? And then I was working at those offices and walking by the tram and it's easy to be jaded about it. To me, driving through the gate to the studio or being on set somewhere or having a conversation or getting to work with someone I'm a fan of is constant reminder of what is so special personally to me, you know, about what I do. And when you're at your best, you feel like you're indeed living the dream, huh? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think a lot of people making a living in Hollywood are living their dream. And a lot of people who have made it, they've overcome great odds. And I think a lot of those people, just because of maybe the nature of the culture, they, they have to establish a sort of sense of inflated ego to deal with a Hollywood press, to deal with Twitter, just to deal with it all. And while I know you're living the dream, and I'm sure you deal with 
great people. And I know that you bring out the best in the people with whom you engage on a daily basis. It's probably the case that you likewise have to deal with some, you know, wonderful people who are treated as though they're larger than life. And I just wonder how ego and anxiety and like the strange way that ego and anxiety manifest in Hollywood impacts how you do your job on on a daily basis. It does exist, but I think I've been very fortunate to have always worked with people who are not cut from that cloth. And so like any business, I think there's ego in every business, whether you're in the, in the clothing business or in consulting or um, we may have a few more, you know, <laughs> your average, although I think those are the good stories that are told. So they tend to get more attention, you know, especially if it's a famous person. But yeah, I mean, people always talk about the no assholes policy. The the retort to that is if there's no assholes on your show, then it's you, <laughs> uh, which I don't always buy. Um, uh, yeah. uh, but I also do believe like sometimes there's, there's um, people who are strong-minded or difficult, but they're so talented that it's, it's worth it. You know, it's worth putting up with, with that. I have less of a tolerance for people who are, um, who are disrespectful uh, and also can't deliver, <laughs> you know, um, <laughs> right. like that, that combination of, yes, uh, you know, is, <laughs> is, is harder for me to stomach. But again, I think as, as I strive to do in the stories we're telling, I also always try to understand that everyone's a person, even if they work for a fancy network or they're running a show or they're a big actor, like at the end of the day, everyone's, we're all people and, um, you know, try to see everything from everyone's point of view and, you know, just try to be tolerant of, of, of those sort of personalities and hope that in the end there is justice, as you said earlier. Uh, and I do think that's true. Oftentimes I'm not naive. Um, and like I said, sometimes there is talent so undeniable that more rain is given to, um, less than ideal behavior, but there has been a sort of reckoning everywhere, but in Hollywood over the last few years, it won't change everything, but I do believe that it's impacted some of the, the old, you know, ideas that existed. So I don't know. I, again, I, I'm fortunate enough that I often have the agency and autonomy to choose the people that I want to work with. And so therefore I feel like I'm less, subject to some of that than others who may just be told that they have to <laughs> deal with certain persons and personalities. Um, so it exists, but like anything, you know, there's, there's ways to, to diffuse or to try to evade that a little bit. Yeah. I mean, I want to go out on a limb and suggest that who you are and what you, Richie Schwartz, bring to the table, you know, you diffuse that. I think like the character, the decency, the warmth, the empathy, the compassion that you bring to a room probably makes people act on their best behavior. You bring out the better angel in people's nature and people who might otherwise be egocentric, perhaps as a manifestation of their anxiety. Like, I think you probably, you and the team that you put together probably create a space where they don't have to do that. I'm going to give you some credit. Like, if you're telling me that most of the time, you know, you're working with people who are being kind and warm and generous, my, my guess is that has a lot to do with what you bring to the table. But there's no good way to respond to that. So I'm just going to let that stand as a matter of fact on the record here. That's very, very kind of you. If people want to spend money on the Patreon, uh, <laughs> I can start naming names of people who are terrible. <laughs> but I don't, give that away. I don't give that away for free. So listen, I, I don't want to tap into pain, but I, I'm going to share a curiosity. I want to know what it feels like when a project that you really believe in doesn't get picked up or it doesn't develop the wings that you know in your heart of hearts it should have. 
As an executive producer, how do you grapple with the feelings around that? It's never easy. I think I've learned to manage my emotions around it a little bit better over time as comes with experience. But yeah, I'm very close to all my projects. You know, I think the only person who probably feels it more than me often is the writer, you know, because it's direct output of them. But I, and I have other things. If something goes away, there's always something else, but you know, each one is different. Uh, (laughs) And uh, I've sort of come to the more sort of philosophical approach to it lately, which is just more about if I feel proud of it and I feel like it, it was what we set out for it to be and it just didn't work or it didn't get the response that we wanted, I can be at peace with it. It's harder if you feel like you've made all of these compromises, which happens. And I think part of my job is knowing which compromises to make and which to when to stick to your guns and your convictions. But I never know that for sure. But when you've, when you've, changed a lot, you know, of the essential ingredient or nature of it, which happens throughout this often bruising development process, and it doesn't work, then it's very upsetting, because then you always say, what if we just stuck with the original idea? Might that have worked? Yeah. And it may not have, (laughs) but at least you feel like you, like, put out the unadulterated version of what got you excited in the first place. Yeah. And, yeah, sometimes it's just it's just not meant to be. And again, like I said earlier, you celebrate all the victories that got you to that point where you've lived with it long enough to be disappointed, where you've loved and you've lost, you know, as opposed to never getting off the ground in the first place. And each one is enriching in its own way. And sometimes things come back around in surprising ways. um, And you still try to bring things back. And most of the time it doesn't work, but there's enough of those, Uh, revival stories to sometimes keep me going, but it can be frustrating again, because producing touches so many parts of it. And so you're always second guessing yourself going, well, maybe this was the wrong element or maybe it was the wrong place or the wrong time. And so you can drive yourself nuts sort of Monday morning quarterbacking the entire process. And I have, yeah. and I always find the failures. And like I said, most of them are, way more illuminating than the successes. Cause oftentimes the successes are just like, I don't know, <laughs> you know, like sometimes you could say, but oftentimes it's just serendipity. <laughs> but um, I think you learn a lot from each one. And at the end of the day, sort of the forces of nature and timing and serendipity and all luck and all of those things. Uh, and, and, you know, Meryl Streep is attached to a different project. You know? <laughs> all of those things in the end are going to render, you know, the little choices and the control that you think you have sort of irrelevant. So I, I both struggle at times emotionally and more intellectually with how could I have done this different and what, what could we have done and also sort of, you know, seed my, my power, you know, and my control to the fates, hmm. uh, which is just a part of that and a part of everything, right? I mean, it's life. Yeah. And this is just TV. Yeah. So it's not in the grand scheme. <laughs> it's like, you know, especially when this much sort of drama and emotion or sometimes like, you know, it's a cartoon or it's a sitcom or, you know, whatever. It means so much more to me. And hopefully it's it has the ability to impact so much more, but you have to stand back sometime and say, you know, we're making TV here, you know, so uh, focus on, you know, what's really important in, in your life. Yeah. Well, TV, I should confess to you, has been so important in my life. And, you know, this is probably a conversation for another time, but I, I can tell you with great certainty that I'm a better person for having spent some time watching TV and it probably has something to do with the diversity of perspectives that I was able to get exposure to, given the limited perspective that I and we all have. But it sounds like, you know, you've learned a lot, too, both as a viewer and as a producer of television. And, you know, you talk a little bit about your struggle in you know, developing these projects. 
But it's your joy for it that is most contagious to me. I take a lot of energy from it. This has been really edifying and inspiring. But I can't let you go uh, without humbly requesting two stories. Will you please tell the story of one professional triumph and one failure, if I could ask for one? And maybe we start with the failure before we end on the note of triumph? Yes. I mean, I know you asked these questions at the end of all, all of your podcasts, so I was trying to think through the failure and I think I've so redefined that word that I was having trouble finding one. And I actually went back to the very beginning of my career before I was a producer or an executive, and I was a production assistant, a lowly PA, which is sort of the entry-level job on any TV or film set. Um, and this is why I was also in school at the University of Wisconsin. And I hooked on with the production company to just get my feet wet and get some credits and do some work. And so the job was PA. And we were doing a sort of a PR or advertising shoot um, for this tourist attraction that you may have heard of called the House on the Rock. Have you heard of that, Dan? Yeah. Uh, apologies if, you know, your family ever drove hours and hours to see this. Uh, which is interesting. I don't mean to sell out the house on the rock, but um, it's weird. <laughs> like someone's creepy yeah. basement. And I mean, it was just, I remember it was probably a 110 degree day in the middle of the summer. We were shooting this place. We couldn't have the air conditioning on because it was making noise. I mean, it, it, we're shooting like little music boxes and these weird collections that this strange proprietor of the house on the rock had kept. And we we're trying to do a tribute to this guy. And we kept asking the long-term employees, you know, we were interviewing them on camera about him. And clearly he was not, not a great guy <laughs> because they would all start, <laughs> a few of them broke down in tears. I had a, a company, a couple of them offset. Oh, it was just like almost American horror story take on this, this world. So that was bad enough. But on top of it, I was not made for this sort of manual labor. Um, it's just not who I am. I don't have those hands. It's not in my in my DNA, <laughs> which is 99% Ashkenazi Jew, uh, I've since learned. Um, yeah, I, I took that test too. Uh, and yet that was my job. I was the guy, I was the I was the guy on the shoot who had to do that. And I was brought in to work with this cameraman who didn't know me, whatever. And so I was wrapping the cords wrong and I was doing all this. And the end of this long day after people were breaking down and we didn't get what we needed and we're all sort of on the verge of heat exhaustion, you know, I put all the camera equipment and all the stuff in the back of the van and shut the doors so it could pull away, or so I thought. But I guess I'm also didn't have a lot of experience with, you know, Astro vans. My family were just sedans. <laughs> I was such a, a strange. And I, the doors didn't shut. And the guy, the driver pulled away and all the equipment came tumbling out. Oh, uh, um, no. and, and so that, I don't know what broke. That definitely got a, 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 a more than a talking to, a, a yelling from the, you know, the, the, the camera guy and the, the, the line producer. Um, and I knew then and there that a, I was not made for the, the, the physical production of the job, <laughs> um, uh, and B, um, I'd never go back to the house in the rock again. And I, haven't, <laughs> I love it. I love everything about that story. Uh, all right. Give me, give me the success. You have so many of them. You know, there, there, there have been a few that I'm proud of. We talked earlier about my experience with Michael J. Fox, which was a personal highlight for me, you know, working with, with Michael. Also, in the course of working on a show, I got to, like, I went with Michael to the Howard Stern show and met Howard Stern. And I had dinner with him one day and Kirk Douglas comes by and I get to meet Kirk Douglas. And we had Sting on an episode of the show and I got to make small talk with Sting sting you know just me and him uh you know which was harder than it seems it's like what do you talk about with sting tantric sex i believe tantric sex i feel like everyone probably leads with that so i wanted to steer clear of that <laughs> um but with michael it was again for me most successful when we'd be out on the streets of new york shooting and someone would 
a stranger just walking the street, you know, these New York people who are just sort of, you know, laser focused on getting to the subway, whatever, like people would stop and not just tourists, you know, people and, and, and speak to us and I, you know, ask if they could talk to him and, and hug him and express how much he means to them. And the fact that he was making the show, you know, what that means for them or their relatives, you know, who are struggling and, then when that show got on the air, hearing, you know, getting letters and emails and hearing from people again about how uh, a sitcom, you know, can have this impact on their lives. And again, even though that story doesn't end with eight seasons and syndication and an Emmy or any of that, um, that felt like a personal highlight. A, a more recent highlight for me was a show that came about because an old friend who I met through college who was a documentary filmmaker um brought me an idea for a you know a docu-series where we would reunite former high school classmates who were in their high school musicals together and bring them back together years later to reunite and perform again and there's something about reunion and taking inventory of life and to me that's again that's the studs turkle element of telling the stories of regular people in their lives but because it was through the guise of musical it had this sort of waiting for guffman fun musical quality to it and there's a little bit of musical high school musical experience in my own background too you know so that was an incredible experience we made a special for abc and then they didn't want to make more they didn't know what to do with it that was one of those where I was like, oh man, this was so great. And we heard from people who loved it. And this was to me has such legs for a show. And then um, sort of the rebirth, which I think is one of my more successful producing experiences. Like I said earlier, a lot of things die and they go away and you talk, you give lift service to, we could bring it back. But um, I had gone to a meeting and met someone who was involved with starting Disney's new streaming service. This is a few years ago, uh, Disney Plus. And when they spoke about what they were looking for, you know, to me, that was exactly the community, the performance, the feel good, all the things about the show Encore that I loved. And, you know, talked to that executive. And, you know, a couple steps later, we were able to take this one off thing that we had done that we'd all loved and that was destined to be, you know, this noble failure. And they ordered 12 more episodes of of the show and we'll work beyond that. And we launched as part of Disney's massive, (laughs) you know, streaming platform. Um, And we won a director's guild award and, you know, uh, and, and again, that's another show that has touched people in different ways, you know, and we hear from people all the time uh, and especially through the pandemic, I think a lot of people discover that show and just love the, the warmth and the, you know, the sweetness and the connection and the feel good nature of that. So that's both, uh, you know, a professional, you know, accomplishment, but also, you know, personally, uh, how that show connects with me and, and, and my interest and in where I come from feels like a win. Yeah, it sounds like a win and it feels like a win to me. And you've driven us right up to this station, but we can't disembark this train without me sharing with you just a, a, a short anecdote. I happened to very recently listen to Michael J. Fox on Mark Marin's podcast. Yeah. Michael J. Fox meant a lot to me growing up as Alex P. Keaton, Back to the Future movies, and on and on. Michael J. Fox was kind of like a North Star for me in a, in a lot of ways. He has, you just talked about like warmth and sweetness and like a feel-good like an earnestness, he has that. But I have to tell you that in listening to him speak to Marin, he reminds me so much of you. And I think the success that you've had in your work is a direct manifestation of your generosity of spirit and your warmth and your sweetness and the way that you're able to make people feel good. And I don't know what Hollywood's like, you know. I listen to Mark Maron, so I, I might pretend like I do, but but I don't. But I imagine it to be, in so many ways, despite the sunshine, often a, a cold and dark place. I could be wrong. But I know that people like you, and you in particular, you bring so much light to it. And I'm so grateful that you're able to tell other people's stories. And I'm so grateful that you you were willing to share some of your story with me. Richie, 
thank you so much for being on the podcast. This has been a genuine pleasure. Thank you so much, Dan. That's, I don't know quite how to respond to that, but it means a lot. So thank you. Yo, that conversation was everything I was hoping it was going to be. That boy's got the magic. I hope you all drank that whole can of liquid Schwartz. The Schwartz is with us. That was fun. Hey, so subscribe, leave a review. And if you dig what you hear, please tell a friend or two. And if studs mean something to you, and you got the means to give a few, please consider supporting me over at patreon.com backslash studs. But more importantly, if you, like me, feel the weight of winter on your shoulders, I just want to urge you to do the things you love. Yo, these are some tough times. Do the things you love. I'm loving doing this podcast. It's taken on a meaning in my life that I surely didn't envision. I started this whole project and I'm truly, truly grateful that you're listening. I hope to catch you on the next episode.